We're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Kate Genovese. Her new book, Hat Tricks from Heaven, a story of an athlete in his own prison of addiction. Good morning, Kate Genovese. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm fine, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell me about your son. Well, my son, Christopher John Genovese, better known as Gino, was a was a wonderful kid. He was a, a athlete. He was smart. He was knowledgeable, but he was also an addict. And we didn't know that until he started playing hockey in uh, middle school and he started to have injuries. And um, one thing led, led to another. He had several injuries in his shoulder and his knees, and he got addicted to Percocet. But we didn't know that until, um, you know, when he was well into his 20s because he, he didn't live with us. He lived at home only on school vacations because he went to a boarding school. And he was a really well-liked kid. Nobody ever picked up on drug abuse. His teachers didn't particularly. And he was just the run-of-the-mill kid, a few beers here. You know, we did know he smoked pot occasionally, but we never, ever thought we would be facing um, heroin and fentanyl addiction ever. We, like you said, we thought it would be somebody else, somebody else's family, not ours. So my husband and I were shocked when we found out that he was an addict. And um, we found that out because his roommate in college um, called us up and told us. He said, Gino has a problem. He, he needs some help. And he said, I do too. I'm heading out to California to a rehab, but I'm just letting you know. So we told Chris, um, we call him Chris, but everybody else calls him Gino. So I'll, I'll call him Gino. So we called Gino home and, you know, sat him down and said, what's going on? And he admitted to it. He admitted he had a problem. But at this time, he was 27, and he wanted to face things on his own. He didn't want his parents helping him. He had a job. He had a girlfriend. He had a college degree. And it wasn't your typical, so we thought, drug addict. But there are no typicals. It doesn't have a zip code. Drug addiction does not have a zip code. So we um, tried to get him some help, which he didn't want. And um, finally, we found out he was stealing money. And he was gambling, trying to make back money that he stole from people. And we eventually got a hold of him and tried to get him in rehabs, which he didn't want. He kept running away. And it, it just became a, a long, sad story. My family got involved. We were all trying to help him, and he didn't want the help. Until you want the help, you don't get it. That's what he told us. And he didn't want it. He wanted to do it on his own. But it got worse and worse. He got in trouble with the law. He ended up in jail um, for a variety of things, um, driving under the influence. And so while he was spending the month in jail in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, um, we, we told him he had to go get some help. He had to go to a rehab. And he agreed. Unfortunately, the um, judge didn't agree and would not let him get any help in a rehab. We had found a good one down in Florida because 
unfortunately, Massachusetts during the winter time, there's no beds. There's no uh, beds, meaning um, in the rehabs, there's, there's limited uh, beds available for people that are on um, welfare. So that's what he was on. So unfortunately, we had to keep him in house arrest. You let him go in house arrest. And that was the probably the worst thing. I didn't educate myself to what home arrest is, and he um, was let, he you know he he was a schmoozer. He he you know had to go to this place in Lowell every day to the sheriff's office to take classes, and there he met kids worse off than him, and he got addict, more addicted to heroin and. Um, fentanyl, which they were putting in the heroin, which we didn't know. Are you aware of what fentanyl is? Oh, yes, I am. Okay. So, um, just briefly, it's it's a bad drug killing, you know, hundreds every day. And the mixture of it just, just kills. And addicts mostly think that it won't happen to them. It's going to happen to somebody else. So, unfortunately, it happened to our son on May 28, um, 2016. He didn't even shoot it. He was snorting it. And um, he passed away that day. They tried to resuscitate him. I wasn't home at the time. So, um, I was away in New Hampshire, and my husband was here. And they called the Woburn Police, which is the town I live in, the city I live in. And they did everything they could for him at the local hospital, but no luck, and he, he died. So it was a nightmare. I mean, it was a nightmare when I first found out that he was um, an addict. Never mind, he, he died. But, you know, it was horrible. It was, like, horrible to our whole family. We have a very large family, and cousins, nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, and he has a brother and a sister. So after the shock went off and we had him cremated and all that, I decided I, I could just sit there and feel sorry for ourselves or I could do something about it. And that's when I decided I was going to write a book. I was going to tell the world for little reasons about the story about my son and his addiction and how it invaded his life and affected our family and, and just about everybody who knew Gino. So I went on to write this book, I Had Tricks from Heaven, and it is a little over 200 pages with, with pictures in it, and it just tells the story of our family. I start with um, my husband and I and how we met, and we went on to have two older kids and then Gino and, in 1985, and he was a happy kid. I mean, one would never have thought of all my children, that he would be the one afflicted with this disease. And, you know, you always thought it was just the wealthy and the poor, but it's everybody, as I said before. And there's no hiding it. There's no staying in denial with this disease. So um, I went ahead and wrote the book, and I tried to pull, not pull any punches. I tried to be as honest as I could with this battle. Um, my husband and I were as sick as he was. Sometimes they call it a family disease. Well, it is a family disease. Addiction is. And um, 
I made, I'll speak for myself, not my husband, I made a lot of mistakes with him. Sometimes he ran, he would come home and he would be so sick from not having drugs. Um, I would get, I would go buying drugs and I, it was something that I couldn't believe I was doing. I mean, I'm a registered nurse. I know better. Um, finally, I got hit on the head, meaning a couple of girlfriends that I was in a 12-step program with Alan on. I told them what I did and they said, uh, Kate, do you want to, uh, like, lose your nursing license? And to me, that was like, no, well, you're going to, if you get caught, driving to Worcester is one of the biggest drug cities in Massachusetts, and they said that red car is in there enough, they're going to know something's going on. And my other friend said, never mind that, how about jail? You, you know, you get arrested and, and you go to jail, and, and suddenly it hit me. Oh, my God, I mean, I'm just as sick as my son. So from then on, I just did not do that. And... Um, you know, trying to get him help was the most difficult thing because he refused. And the only time he didn't refuse was when he was incarcerated. And point being, I was very upset with the judge not letting him get help. The correct help he needed was to go to a rehab. We need detoxes and rehabs. We're low on them in Massachusetts. And it's probably the same in Philadelphia. I don't know um, exactly what your governor has done since this epidemic, but here, um, Charlie Baker, our governor, has set aside money to try to get more um, bed for addicts. It is a disease. People have to look at this as a disease. There's a mental component in the brain that they're missing, they're lacking. And these kids need help, men and women. Um, you know, it doesn't even come in an age group. Older people can get addicted. And so we definitely need more help in the country. And there's, um, in Philadelphia, I think there's been quite a few drug overdoses. I read there was 100 overdoses per month. That's with the fentanyl in the heroin. Mm-hmm. And all 50 states have a Drug Enforcement um, Act going on. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens with that. As far as I know, that's just beginning. But it's sad. Every every week in my state, you hear somebody overdosing. I mean, several of Christopher's friends, Gino's friends, have overdosed since him. And... Prior to that, there were many before that. So it's scary, you know. At one time, we thought it was, um, you know, a person's disease. They were lowlifes, you know, just kick them on the street. I remember being in nursing school when um, alcoholism was big, and I was in Boston, the big Boston hospital, and there was this man that was everybody thought was drunk, and they were actually just walking over him. So I stopped with one of my nurse nurse friends, and, and we looked at him, and we said, let's get an ambulance, and the guy had had a stroke. Mm. Everybody was just assuming he was, a, he was a drunk, which is a horrible thing to say, but that was several years back. So now it's almost just as bad. I still feel people are not looking at this as a disease. 
it's getting better, but it's still looked at as, um, how can I put it? It's still looked at as uh, not up there with cancer. Like, you wouldn't mind saying, gee, I have cancer, or my mother has cancer. But when you come out and say, well, my son's a drug addict, people still turn the other way. When we, in my son's obituary, we put um, that Chris died of an overdose, an accidental overdose, which it was. Like I said, he snorted um, heroin and fentanyl. And we were one of the first parents to ever do that. And people said, gee, you were brave to do that. I would never have done that. I wouldn't want to hit that. I didn't want anybody to know my kid was an addict. And I said, we got to know it. Everybody has to know it. And from then on, lots of people have come out and said, yes, my son, my daughter, this beautiful child of mine has died of an overdose. And I know Gino would have loved for me to write this book, Hattricks from Heaven. And, of course, we know what Hattricks are. Mm-hmm. You must know him. Philadelphia with your hockey team. So he had plenty of hat tricks in his day. And so I believe he's in heaven doing these hat tricks. And he he was such a love. He really was. And at his wake, there were over 400 people. And I, and I sat there thinking, you know, selfishly of me, thinking, geez, why couldn't it have been somebody else? Why my son? And then I said, well, why not? You know, he he could have stopped. He could have gotten help. He chose not to. This is how strong the disease is. This is how powerful addiction is. He gave up going back to school to get a master's degree. He gave up a beautiful girlfriend, inside and out, beautiful. He gave up a job that he was making six figures, everything for heroin and fentanyl, everything. And his family, us, he didn't want to give it up. He didn't want to give. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, he he just didn't. I don't think he believed he was going to die. The last time I saw him, he waved to me. I was heading to um, New Hampshire with my family, my brothers and sisters, to our place in New Hampshire. And he had our dog, and he was sitting on the grass with him, and he held up our dog Frankie's paw, and he waved goodbye, and he said, see you on Monday. He said, I'm starting my new job, and he was. He was starting another job. Through all of this, my son worked. No matter what, he found some kind of job. And something said to me, geez, I don't know if I should go. And I called my husband up, and I said, I, I don't know if I should have come up here. I feel like I should have stayed home. And he said, Kate, if he's going to overdose, he's going to do it with you here or with you not here. And that is true. What happened that night was um, he was he was still on house arrest, and Gina was walking up the street. He had a curfew at, at 10 o'clock, and my husband was driving up the street Friday night. He picked him up. They stayed up. They talked. They watched um, sports. I think they were watching the Red Sox for a while. And uh, Gina said, well, I think I'll go to bed. And my husband said, yeah, me too. It was around 11. And so at 1 o'clock, he saw the light on downstairs, and he went on to, sh- to shut the light out, and he saw Gino um, passed out, and he he had overdosed. And um, 
it was too late, actually. They did try to uh, revive him, but it was too late. He must have just used, decided to use one last time. We don't know. The police tried to find out. They had his cell phone. They believed that he got the um, heroin slash fentanyl from somebody in Lowell that he was in the sheriff's um, department with for the classes, so somebody from that area. But they then found that that person was in jail, and there was nothing they could do about it till he got out. So um, my point is that this this has to stop. I mean, parents need to become aware. I wasn't even aware. I was blind to this at first. You know, you have to. The reason for the book is to open your eyes, recognize the signs and symptoms of these of the drug addiction. A lot of times now looking back, when Gino came home for the weekend, you know, if I had just taken a good look at his eyes, you know, I could see ten. He was probably stoned. Or if I just maybe looked in his uh, checkbook to see what he had in there, you know, would have been sneaking, but I could have found out something then. I didn't find out too much later. And I wasn't, and other parents aren't aware of that either. They are just blind to it. They don't want it to be their kids, and they still don't. And this is my story, my mother's story. You know, it's joy, sadness, devastation, and loss. But it's, yet it's inspiration because I want people to know. I want parents to know. I want this book to be at every high school in America because kids can read this book in high school and see this story and say, do I want to be this kid? Do I want to be Gino? I mean, he had a great life ahead of him. You know, he was well-liked. He played all sorts of hockey was his main thing. But he played um, football. He would have been probably on a, you know, uh, NHL someday if he hadn't had all the injuries he had. He had six surgeries, which led to his um, addiction, one of the reasons it led to his addiction. And I'll say this, one of the surgeries he had, I called the doctor up because um, he was a senior in high school. He had just had a second shoulder surgery, and he was going back to school. He went to um, a school called Governor's Academy, and he said, well, before we go back, can you please stop at the clinic so I can get another script? And I said, you don't need any more pain medicine. What do you need? You know, this is like your your sixth week of recovery. You don't need any more Percocet. And he said, Mom, I am so sore. I need Percocet. So I took him, but afterwards I called the doctor up. And I said to him, really? I mean, because I know him. I had worked with him. I said, do you really need, think he needed, this was a, would have been his sixth prescription of um oxycodone actually and he's he he read me the riot act he said um don't you know how painful shoulder surgery is so this would have been about eight years ago don't you know how horrible uh shoulder surgery is and he needs this pain medication and i said addiction runs in my family alcoholism is big in my family i had a nephew already one nephew die of um an overdose. I said, I don't want to see this happen to my son. And he said to me, stop being a helicopter mother 
your son is not an addict. And so at that point, I felt embarrassed. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. I have to let it go. But you know what? I wish some mother listening to this, some father listening to this, doesn't just let it go. Maybe it will save their lives because it might have saved his life if he didn't continue with this. I would imagine on some level, if you could go back and see the first doctor who prescribed him that medication, you'd want to smack him in the head. I know it. I know it. Most kids at that age don't need such strong medication. Sure, they might need two weeks, but that's it. Put them on um, 800 milligrams of Motrin. That's all they need. They don't need anything else. And, and then the parents can look for signs, and the doctors too. Doctors and nurses, all of us are responsible for these kids. You know, if you think that they're getting too much, speak up. Say, I, I, this kid's getting too much. I, I think we got to look out for him. You know, when I was a school nurse, we had this thing. We have to look out for high-risk kids. Not just meaning with drugs, but kids that we know are going to get in trouble. You know, kids that might be robbing a bank someday. And being a school nurse, I could pick up on some of these kids. They were always down my office. They were always getting in trouble, even in the playground. And so, that being said, you know, what I would do is call their parents and say, you, you know, you can't say it sensitively, of course, but the child's been in my office five times this week. Is anything going on at home? Is anything bothering him or whatever? Or if it's a high school kid, you can ask them directly, like, can you tell me what's going on? And I've had several cases of the kids telling me, yeah, finally saying that they were sexually abused by their relative. And that's another story, part of the story. It's not a huge part in the book, but we found out that Gina was sexually abused by his uncle. And so that was part of his issue as well, why, why he was using. It's, it's, it's got to be an incredible thing, Kate, to lose your baby son. I mean, he wasn't a baby when he died, certainly. But on some level, your last-born child is always going to be your baby. Yeah, well, I think your kid is always your kid, your, no matter what age, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, even though he was 30, he was, yeah, you're right, he was still my baby. You know, he was fun. He had a great sense of humor. He was always helping people, even though he was an addict, you know. He just he'd run out of, he'd jump out of a car and help somebody change their tire or, you know, he'd, you know, help. He, he, I gave the story when he was at Assumption College. He, um, this girl told me this at, at his wake. This um, girl said, I love Gino. He saved my life. And I said, well, what do you mean? And, and she said, I'm just telling you, he saved my life. If, I, if it wasn't for him, I would have been raped. And she proceeded to tell me that he was walking on the campus back to his dorm. It was the first year, and he saw this girl being attacked, and he went over. Now, Gino was a big kid, pretty big. You know, he was, you know, he was in shape. He was a hockey player. He was um, went over there, and he saw this girl being attacked. He, he, he punched the kid. He called the um, campus police. He took the girl. Took her. She didn't, fortunately, she wasn't hurt. 
<clears throat> physically, you know, um, sexually. He got there in time, and he um, saved her from that and got this kid thrown out of school. Thank God. So he was always doing nice things. He knew right from wrong. It was this addiction that had a grasp on him. But and that just your, story, just... your story reminds us, Kate, that, and you said it already, no zip code, no racial group, no religious group, no age right. group is immune. Um, exactly. And we need to remember that. And certainly you as a parent, at least at the beginning, probably was very easy to think, well, that's not going to happen to our kind of folk. It happens to those other kind of folk over there, not to our kind of folk. Because you never, exactly. you never dream that it could happen to you. No, I didn't. I really didn't dream it was going to happen to him. I didn't dream it was going to happen to him to him till the very end. Very end. I said, you know, this could, because we had just heard of a um, boy that he, a man, he went to college with that had overdosed and had been his roommate one year. And I said, geez, if, it, if, it, if it's Brian, this could be Gino. I mean, they're the same class, you know. And so it hit me, you know, we got to, I really want to do something, but what can I do? What can I do besides go to Al-Anon? What can I do besides set up some groups and try to get this known and do something? But people are too interested in, the kids' hockey game and getting them on the best teams and, you know, um, showing off their kids and everything else. And I was one of those parents. I had two other kids. I was one of those parents. I wasn't looking out. I was reading the Sunday paper and, you know, reading about this kid and that kid dying, and, and that was never going to be my family. You know, how arrogant of me. How arrogant of me to even think that. And now I'm in such a different place. I mean, I want this book to just blow, just get out there and, and people to read it and say, this, actually I said already, this could be my son or daughter. And this, there's a lot of girls overdosing, lots of them. And it's a very, I don't know the statistic offhand between uh, men and women, but it's certainly up there, certainly up there now. Absolutely. And it could be your son, it could be your daughter, it could be your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your uncle, your best friend. It could be any Absolutely. of those people. Absolutely. could be any of those people, which is why we're coming to the point where the war on opiates has been declared a public health problem that needs to be addressed starting at the federal level on the way down. Now, does your governor, is it, who's your governor, is it Tom Wolf? Yes. So how does, do you know how he is approaching this epidemic? They all seem to be approaching it the same way from my perspective. Public, yeah. public relations campaign, there is help. We're going to find some money in the budget to expand treatment options. And, yeah. But with on the federal level, Congress threatening with the president's help to cut the Medicaid budget. That's going to make treatment even harder for those people who yeah. can't afford it. Um, and at the same time, the president's talking about a national effort to be headed um, by that lady, that blonde lady who's... Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Makes me wonder what she knows about addiction to head such an effort, or is she just going to be a good administrator, hopefully? 
but that's another discussion. Um, well, I think they need to hire somebody that has it in their family or is passionate about it to, to get the word out there and to seriously get help. I mean, if I ever made enough money on this book and elsewhere, I would I would do my little part and get a, a call it Gino's house and, and have it be a rehab or something. Do my part, do our family's part for this because that's part of the problem. There's no beds. There's no beds. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Kate Genovese. Her new book, A Story of Her Son, Hat Tricks from Heaven, the story of an athlete in his own prison of addiction. Kate, I would imagine, and I think I've heard it from you this morning, there's a temptation to blame yourself, and you shouldn't. At least I don't think you should. Well, I'm not blaming myself now because I realize... um, you know, I as I said, it was a family disease. So I kind of have gotten help myself, and I realize it's not particularly my fault. If I had known now what I didn't know back then, then he would be alive. Did I say that correctly? I wish I knew now what I didn't know then. Who said that? Bob Seger said that. <laughs> I think. Well. One of the songs. But if I had known some of this, if I was aware, if I paid attention, if my husband paid attention, because we were always battling what to do with Gino, you know, I wanted to throw him out. He wanted to, you know, he's full-bred Italian. Italians don't do that to their kids. And, you know, it's we've got to keep him at home. We've got to help him in some way. You know, we had two different approaches, and neither of us could be on the same page with us. But I think we didn't want that for us, and we wanted him to get well and just get back on track. That's what my husband kept saying. Gino, you need to get back on track. But back on track, that's for somebody who doesn't have a big problem. To have a huge problem like this, it's more than getting back on track. I have a girlfriend that's an addict, and she's been sober for five years. She's my age. She said, and she's working in that field now, addiction, she said, what every addict needs to do is get out of their environment for a good nine months, leave the state they're in, leave the friends they had nine months, can't see anybody. They got to get to know themselves. They get to realize they have this disease before they can even attempt to go back to their own roots. And I believe her because that's what she had to do, and she's been sober five years now. What the addict needs to do, I've been told, is hit bottom and know they've hit bottom. Where the only yeah. Way, the only way to go is up. Because yeah, only if you're lucky enough to hit bottom and know it. That, that's, that's the thing. Especially yeah. young, young people that were Gino's age, you think you're invincible, you're going to live forever, and nothing's going to touch you. And that doesn't right. happen. That doesn't happen. To lose the job, to lose his education, to lose the love of his life, to lose his life for the sake of this high. Um, I know. It's really scary. Yeah. It's really scary. It's very painful. It's painful for um, his friends to watch. You know, they couldn't do anything. But the thing is, he was beginning to lose friends because he 
he was starting to steal, you know? I think he died just before he became hated. And I say that in all honesty because I have I grew up with some addicts. My brother-in-laws that were in Vietnam came home addicts, a couple of them. And um, they were loved because they came home from Vietnam and they served in the war. And then all of a sudden their addiction became known. And then they got worse. And they started to steal from people. And then they started not to take care of themselves. And so people started to avoid them. You know, I don't want to be with this guy. Look what he's doing. You've got to hide your pocketbook. You've got to hide your money. And so that was Gino right before he died. He was beginning to do that. But fortunately, not enough people knew that about him and at his wake, he was just still the Gino they knew in college, the Gino they knew in high school. They loved him. They were shocked. They were shocked that this kid, this athlete, this funny kid, you know, this kid who did somersaults all over the place when he was 200 pounds, <laughs> he would just do crazy things and make everybody laugh. And he, and he died of an overdose? You know, it was like Jim Bellucci. Mm -hmm. Like, who would have thought of that? So it's it's sad. It's sad. And I'm really passionate about getting this arrested, getting this disease arrested or helped somehow, somehow people to be aware of it and not be silly about it and say, my kid doesn't. Oh, my kid wouldn't do that. Fortunately, I've had a couple of, um, I have a website. It's kategenevesebooks.com, and a couple of people have um, um, reached out to me through that and told me that they have, so happy they read my book because they have two sons, two different families and two different sons that they got help for. They, well, one of them just said, I never thought he was stealing from me. I just thought it was me, like I was missing money, and became aware of it and got the kid help. And then the other one just came forth and they asked him, do you have a drug problem? And he said, yes, and they got him help. Fortunately, he was willing to do that. Mine wasn't, you know. He just thought he could do it on his own, as I said. Mm. Yeah, which, you know, it's human nature to want to fix things yourself. Absolutely. And you know, part of being a man is to fix it yourself. A lot of people yeah. think that's not the case, certainly. But, you know, men are supposed to take care of themselves and other people. Exactly. Exactly. And other people. And other people. So that's the bottom line of what I want to do with this. And I want to, like on the back of my book, do you have a copy of my book? Yes, I do. So on the back, I mean, that was him saying, do I look like an addict? Like, of course he doesn't. Like, and the stigma. I mean, he was just a loving kid. And let's just end this. Let's end this roller coaster ride. What, which raises the question: What does an addict look like? An addict in yeah. most, an addict in most people's mind looks like a poor minority, who's right. who's running around hitting people on the head to get money. Yeah, and that's certainly exactly. not the case. But it's what people fear, and fear is a very powerful thing for so many people. Right. Was, yeah. there, was there help for the rest of the family? 
as you were seeking help for Gino? Was there support for you, your husband, your other two children? Well, my other two children are older, and uh, my daughter, yes, she got a lot of help. She's a social worker. Um, she got help for herself just living or, you know, being in the same family with her her brother, and she tried to help him. I mean, she, her, above all people, could find, would try to find a bed for him, and and when she'd finally find one, he'd take off and leave like he was too afraid. And by the time we could get another bed for him, it was too late. There wasn't any, wasn't any available. And my son Dan, unfortunately, um, Gino stole money from him. It was a lot of money. And he took, and he lives in uh, out of the country. He lives in Moscow. And so, unfortunately, he didn't want anything to do with him. He just wanted his money back. He just just could not believe his brother would steal money from him like that. He was probably very hurt. Yeah, he probably still is very hurt. Absolutely. Well, but that's another important thing, too. That's one of the signs, I would think, of an addiction in the family when things start disappearing, whether it's money out of your purse, yeah, the, cha- right. the change you got from the delivery boy, Grandma can't find her brooch. Where'd I put those earrings? Exactly. Yeah, and even me, when I had, uh, when he was home with us on and off, I had had back surgery, no, no, foot surgery, and I was laid up. And I had Percocets, rightly so. I needed them for my foot. And I would keep my purse by my side. And... You know, I'd fall asleep, and next thing I know, they're missing. Like, eight of them are missing. And he'd say, oh, Mom, you you took them. You know, you're just, you, you're drugged up. You're not aware that you took them. I'd say, what? I mean, there was like 20 in here. Now there's only eight left. And for some reason, he turned it around, made me think that I was a drug addict. And here I was believing them. That's how sick I was. And then it dawned on me, this is crazy. The second time it happened, I said, I know for sure you took them. You know for sure. Addicts can be very crafty, duplicitous people. Yes, manipulative. And, you know, they turn into somebody they're not. They turn into demons. Mm -hmm. Somebody you once knew isn't there anymore. And you're listening to Conversation. We're talking addiction in the family with Kate Genovese author of the new book, Hat Tricks from Heaven, the story of an athlete on his, in his own prison of addiction. Got a question for Kate? Give us a call on 1-888-729-9494, 1-888-729-9494. And on your Verizon or AT&T cell phone, it's pound 9494. Get your question answered. You've got to get the information you need if this is a problem you're concerned about. My name's Peter Solomon. Kate, what do you think of the government's response to the addiction problem? Is it enough, too much, not enough? Well, it's being approached. Um, I don't. I personally don't think we have the right president that's going to approach it properly, but he has to do something. He has to mention it. So I think what's going to happen is that we're going to – the best approach for it is to – 
uh, go, I would say go state by state. Um, Tip, Tip O'Neill once said, um, everything happens, everything that good happens is local. Everything happens locally. So even if we just started in my town, like let's do what Woburn, Massachusetts doing. They, they have a good example of what they're doing here, you know. Uh, let's do what Bo uh, in, in a Boston is doing. Um, and people pick up on it. And people learn from it. So I think state by state things will happen. That's my personal feeling. That's how it's going to go. If we do this big, huge whole thing, something's going to get screwed up. If we include all 50 states on one program, I don't. I just don't think it will work. I think that, you know, they're trying to do a drug enforcement with all the states, and they can do it with the prescription drugs and all that. They can. Um, I just said knee replacement, and so um, I do know that doctors are limited to give so much medication out; they can't keep giving it out. So they can do that in all 50 states, but how are they going to stop the dealers? How are they going to stop the dealers? How are they going to stop the person that uh, killed my son? Basically, two guys were out there, sold it to him, and killed him with the, the amount of heroin and fentanyl. That's who I want to go after. I think that's who's mostly dying the kids on the street, not the ones that are getting prescription drugs necessarily. Yeah. Prescription drugs, I think, are the start. Yeah. The finish, yeah. Uh, the finish, the dying, if you will, is way above that. Right. That's true. That's true. So it's, it's kind of like um, you don't know what to do. You have to have a committee, committees that of people that care, not people that are just sitting there because they have to be on this committee. I mean, I remember that all different walks of life. I had you have to be on this committee in nursing school and the hospitals I worked in, and I wasn't into it. I didn't care for certain committees I was on, but get people that are anxious to see people getting well. Let's see the 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 people. The, the rate drop of people dying of overdoses. Let's see it drop from 100 a month down to 50 and then down to 25. Like, how is that happening? What are they doing to make that happen? You know, uh, what were you going to say? What do you think of the trend that seems to be happening state by state of making Narcan available in your local pharmacy over the counter? the drug that can short-circuit an overdose? Oh, yeah. I think that the Narcan? Yes. Oh, I think that that got to be available. I think that that should be available for nothing, for everybody, if they need it, for, some, for a family member. I know we went to a um, group, I forget the name of it, it wasn't Al-Anon, but it was similar, and it was for all parents or loved ones of drug addicts. And we got the Narcan, and we were shown how to use it. It was an in inhaler. I think they have something different now. 
So we had that in our house, um, but it was just too late by the time we, Gary, my husband, found it, and he had been passed for two hours, so it was too late. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I believe we should have that. Do you have that in um, your town you live in? And they're, they're, they're working on getting it going in Pennsylvania. I think it's yeah. coming, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, it's very scary, but yeah, we definitely need it. That's for sure. It will save lives. Some people are against it. I heard some bunch of women talking, and I was at a party, and a bunch of women were talking. Well, why? Why get it? If they want to die, let them die, anyways. <laughs> that sounds so cruel. Well, how would they feel like if it was one of their children who was dying? I know it. Well, those are the people we're talking about that have no, that they're clueless, that they don't believe that that's going to happen to their family. You know, they're not going to, they don't think it's going to happen to them, so they're not going to worry about it. And I don't believe that people want to overdose. I really just don't think they want to. I mean, I think most people don't want to overdose when they're using the drugs. I think that the high is incredibly wonderful, and so they get they want it, but they die because of it because it's so strong. But wasn't for the fentanyl and just the heroin, it wouldn't be so bad. But the fentanyl is what's killing them. The most powerful um, pain-killing drug on the market today, much more yeah. powerful than heroin. Yeah, absolutely. But something that I'd be interested in your reaction to, Kate Genovese, um, they don't want to die necessarily, but you can become so trapped in an addiction if you're given the choice of get help or not get help. That's scary because you don't believe you can do it. I knew a young man once who had a heroin problem and um, had tried to kick it several times and couldn't. And I was his parole officer. I worked as a parole officer for many years. Oh. And um, he had overdosed again. He was in the hospital. And I told him we were going to send him back to jail only until we could get him into a program because he needed to try again. He didn't believe he could do it. He ran from the hospital and ended up killing himself. Because he, oh. he didn't believe that he could kick the habit and stay clean. That's one of the major pains in my life and psyche that I wasn't able to stop that somehow. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, mean, I guess there's some people, well, there's some people that don't. I think the percentage is small. I think, you know, we all have that will to live. Like maybe there is hope out there. Maybe there is somebody that wants to help me. But my brother-in-law I was talking about who, did two tours of um, two tours in Vietnam. His second tour, and he came home strung out on heroin. And my sister did everything she could to help him. And although he had the help from the VA and help from loving families on two sides, he had a little boy. He just couldn't do it. He could not do it. And my sister left him, and three years later, he killed himself. He left a note and just said, I am not strong enough for this drug. 
you lose hope. I think that's what happens to some people. You lose hope that you can't make that change. You become mm. so dependent on it, like breathing. Right. So dependent. You're right. That's a good example. Like it's just like breathing to them. And they wake up needing it, waiting for it. The next fix, they got to have it. And you'll do anything you have to, whether it's rob, whether it's steal, whether it's cheat, whether it's prostitute yourself, whatever. You'll, right. do, what, you'll do what you got to do to get that next fix. Because the pain, the physical pain, and it sounds like um, Gino had some psychological pain from his uncle who was um, not appropriate with him. Right, right. He did his psychological pain, which in the book I tell how we got some help. And, um, you know, he he seemed to handle it okay, but I'm not so sure. He stopped seeing a counselor after a couple of years when he was in school. And then when he was working, I mean, I he was out on his own for a while, you know. He was a young businessman. I didn't know what he was doing. He was living in Worcester at his own business car. And the only time I wished I had commented him commented to him was he um, told me he didn't have rent. He didn't have rent money. And I he asked me to borrow it, and I said, you don't have rent money? Like, Why? And he said, I, I, I gambled and I lost half of it. Can you give me half of the rent money? So I didn't believe him. And I didn't want to hand him the money. So I asked him who his landlord was and I wrote the check out to him. Because I just didn't feel he wasn't telling me the truth. I wish I had pursued that a little more. Well, gambling's another kind of addiction. Yes. Yeah, I wish I had pursued that a bit more. But, you know, then again, you're pursuing things that, you know, I'm thinking when I was his age, when I was 27, when I want my mother butting in on me all the time. Well, it all depends on what kind of a mother or a father you've got butting yeah. in on. Yeah. It sounds like you and Mr. Genovese were good parents who wanted the best for their child. Just couldn't quite figure out how to do it. Yeah, that was really, really about it. And by the time we figured out how to do it, somewhat, he overdosed. One last question, Kate Genovese, author of the book Hat Tricks from Heaven. If you could, yes. run, if you could run into Gino, you know, on the streets of heaven someday, what would you say to him? <laughs> I would say, I would just say I love you. No matter what you did, I love you. And I'm so sorry you were so caught up in this disease. We have a caller. I want to try and squeeze in a quick caller. So let's, okay. say, let's say good morning to John. John, your question okay. or comment, I need you to be brief. Yeah, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I had two cousins, honestly, who died of, of this stuff. And... You know, I can tell you exactly what the common cause was. The common cause was, unlike my father, who invested every minute, my mother invested every minute and every second of their time and focus, putting value systems in us, putting in, you know, a, a, a self-confidence that we could be our own people. My two cousins didn't have that. They had parents who were more involved in chasing after the dollar 
They had parents who had no kind of value system. They had parents who were more involved in themselves and then not involved in their kids until all of a sudden the only way they could reach out and lash out was through this nonsense. They never got involved with what kind of friends they had, never got involved in what they were doing. And, and quite honestly, I find it, <laughs> I kind of find it a little bit ridiculous listening to you two when the answer by so much of the community is, oh, what's the government going to do to fix this? What are we going to do about giving out Narcan? How about people getting involved in their kids? How about being good parents, instilling value systems, instilling confidence, focusing on priorities of things about living instead of finding the only outlet for yourself is to go out and get involved in this kind of crap that makes you get into peril of drugs. And I'm sorry, I don't mean any disrespect to you. I don't mean to dwell about what you did. All I know is everyone in my life, and I have a lot of people still who get involved in this nonsense, come from because they have no set of value systems, zero. And they find that their only way of expressing themselves instead of going out and doing something good in society is to go out and get high. And I wish you a good day. Thank you, John. I'm not sure what to say to John, Kate, Kate, what to say to John. Well, I, I think John has, um, I'm glad he could speak out. I'm glad he has a voice. Um, he's, I don't think he's looking at it as a disease. I mean, we had a wonderful value system for our children. We didn't bring them up to say, oh, boy, we're going to let you be a heroin addict. We never even chased money or anything that he was talking about. We were... My husband works for a local town for the last 40 years. I've been a registered nurse for 40 years, and we we just worked our asses off and tried to provide for our kids. We had them work. Um, we had them involved in a lot of different things. My son had a disease, the disease of addiction, that no matter how, what value system we gave him, he was going to have it, and he it's just like having cancer. I think, too, Kate, that um, it all began with the injuries. I mean, if you, yeah. if you knew then what you know now, would you have let him play hockey? No. I wish I had put my foot down. I wish I had said no and just said, no, you can't. I'm not paying for it. You're not doing it. Because if, <laughs> because if you begin to a first cause, the hockey, the injury, the medication – the pain, and so you went down that very slippery slope with your son. And very tragic. slippery slope, but it also wasn't up to me. It was up to the coaches and my husband, and they all wanted him to play hockey, and he wanted to play. I was outnumbered, and it was part of who he was. He loved, he loved playing hockey. He loved the whole essence of it, his coaches, his his teammates, everything was wonderful when he played hockey and football. And I'd, like, and I'd like to say thank you to Kate Genovese, her new book, an important book. I'd like to see someone send it to Donald Trump for Christmas, that new book, Hot uh, Trick from Heaven. Well, thank you. Can I give my website of time? Please. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's com. And the book, Hat Tricks from Heaven, the story of an athlete in his own prison of addiction. Thank you. Thank you, Kate hey. Genovese. My pleasure. Hey, thank you very much, Rita. My pleasure. And it's been conversation. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.